I'm Lieutenant Pat Doring, Crisis Negotiator from WhatCopsWatch.com. And you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Becoming a cop, especially today, isn't easy. Learning how to become one, even more difficult. I'm Officer Tommy Model, and I've been a cop for a decade plus. Grab a warm cup of coffee, open your mind, and take in my free field training. Our lives have many firsts. First love, first kiss, first car, first time we go see the movies, the first time we move out of our parents' house, the first time we get a bill. Today I want to talk about both the greatest and worst first time in my life. After, I'll take all of your questions, so please, we're broadcasting this on the YouTube live stream right now, and we're recording it for the Freefield Training Podcast over at freefieldtraining.com. Give me a comment over in the live stream. Give me some things to talk about, some questions and concerns you have with the topic that we're covering today. And go on over to freefieldtrainingpodcast.com. Click the box, the contact me box, and send us some information about what you want to see for upcoming videos. I'd like to dedicate this podcast and this program today to Sadie, the person who taught me all the greatest lessons in my life, both as a cop and as a man. We'll talk more about her here in a minute. Our story starts on October 10th of 2004. I was working as a camp ranger, a little side gig on weekends way back in the day, and I was driving home on Roll Route 126. I was eastbound heading back toward the Chicagoland area from Yorkville. As I'm driving down the road, it's dark out, it's kind of late, it's chilly. I got the radio going, the heat up. And I see way up ahead of me a fire. And at first I thought it was a bonfire off at the side of the road. It was a cold night, but it wasn't so cold that people wouldn't be out having a fire. You throw a jacket on, you'd be all right. As I got closer, I realized the fire was in the road, which was a little concerning for me. As I continued to get closer, I realized that it was a part of a car on fire. I start slowing down, and I come to this stop. I pull over to the side of the road. I turned a little yellow blinky light on on my car that I had for being a camp ranger, and I got out. I realized there was a car flipped over in the ditch on to my left as I was on the road, and then in the middle of the road was a vehicle that had been demolished in a car accident. I could hear screaming from inside the car. Uh, There were two people in the front seat. The driver had hit the airbag very, very hard. It was moving, but still strapped in, still seat belted in, very, very badly hurt. There was a woman who was up against the windshield of the car, screaming. That was the person that I heard. She looked very, very, very badly hurt. And then in the back seat was a small girl. Her name was Sadie, I would find out later. Of the three of them, the, the one that looked the least hurt was Sadie in the back seat. So myself and another guy that I'd rather later find out was an EMT. We break out one of the windows on the car, get the back door open, check on the little girl in the back seat. I knew that the two people up front, there really wasn't anything I can do anything for them. They were bleeding, but it wasn't arterial bleeding. At the time, 2004, tourniquets and pressure dressings and things like that weren't a thing that I kept in a first aid kit. It wasn't a kit really thing that anybody really kept in first aid kits. I figured the best thing that I could do was treat for shock, 
and there were already people calling 911. So we get into the back seat. There's a little girl, apparently uninjured. She's got a lap belt on, just a lap belt. I think the shoulder belt was behind her. And she's leaned all the way forward. I touched her. She was warm, so I knew it hadn't happened long ago. Whatever happened. And when I touched the side of her head, I could hear her make a little noise. It wasn't a word. It wasn't, it wasn't a groan. It didn't seem like she was in any pain. It was the same type of noise that now I hear from my daughter when I go and check on her before I go to bed. Just a little, you know. <sighs> so I realized that she's, she's probably okay. It's pretty cold out. She was wearing, I think, just pajamas, very light clothing. So I ran back to my car and got the only thing I could get, which was a blanket. I came back with the blanket, put it over. Uh, the EMT that was there told me, hey, don't touch the people in the front seat. And I says, it's, yeah, I'm an Eagle Scout. It's, I'm not going to touch someone right after a traumatic car injury accident. Like, we're going to wait for the ambulance because they're still, you know, everybody here is still breathing. We'll leave them in place until the paramedics get here to see collar them and get them out, which was what we did at the time what they did at the time. He ran over to check on the car that was rolled over in the ditch. I just kind of put my hand on the, the back of the little girl and talked to her. And I looked over at him as he was climbing up onto the driver's side of the car because it was on its side. Climbed down, kind of down inside and looked over at me and shook his head no. Even at that time in my career, I, I knew what that meant. So we knew we had three people to care for and the only one I could do anything for was the little girl in the back seat. So I sat with her. And on the side of the road, on rural route 126, late at night, waiting for the ambulance, I watched her die. I knew there was nothing really more that I could do, but I always felt bad about it. Everything after that on the scene was a blur. The ambulance came. They took the two people from the front seat. They started working on them. She collared the driver. Started dealing with the passenger. Paramedic came over and confirmed what I was telling him. That the little girl in the backseat had passed away. And a sheriff's deputy from the Kendall County Sheriff's Department came over. Talked to me. You know, did you see the accident? I said, no, I didn't see the accident. I rolled up after it happened. Car was on fire when I got here. I said, the little girl was alive when I got here, but... The ambulance, it you know, just took too long. And I assumed that, you know, whatever had caused her to pass away had to be some sort of internal injuries, probably from the seatbelt or hitting her head or God knows what. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what caused it. But I felt bad because there was, there was nothing that I could do and nothing that I did do. When you have an incident like that, afterward, you think to yourself, maybe there was something I could do. Maybe if I had pulled that little girl out of the back seat and done CPR on her on the side of the highway, she would have stayed alive long enough for the paramedics to get there. Maybe if I had noticed some injury that she had, I could have treated it. Maybe she had an arterial bleed somewhere and I just wasn't paying attention because of the stuff that was in the car. I didn't check her enough because I wasn't trying to, I was trying not to move her because I didn't want to cause any more injury than she already had. And I didn't know at the time how bad off she was while I was there. I went home and some friends called. I went over to their house. They were having a get-together. And 
they said, you know, you don't seem like yourself. And I just I didn't really want to eat. And I really didn't want to talk to anybody. And I went home a short time later. And when I went in, I took a shower and I look at myself in the mirror. And all I could think about was the regret that there was nothing that I had done to try to make the situation better. All I did was get a blanket and treat her for shock and try to be with her until the ambulance could get there. So a couple months later, I, uh, I'm back out at the scout camp where I'd been working and I was still shook up about this. I talked to a volunteer firefighter who worked with the ambulance company. They were, you know, on the scene with the ambulance company that had responded out there that night. He had told me that the little girl in the backseat, Sadie, that there's, there's nothing anybody could have done. I don't remember exactly what he said or what he called, what her injuries were, but he said if had that happened directly in front of a level one trauma center, I think he's, he used the example, if that had happened in the street directly in front of Christ Hospital, there's nothing the best trauma surgeon in the world could have done to save her. So don't feel bad about it. You did the only thing anybody could do. So it made me feel better. Knowing that the, the last thing that Sadie knew in her life was the kindness and comfort of a stranger. That someone was there with her when her life ended. And that if she was a little bit conscious, someone was there to reassure her. And I felt better. I was able to look myself in the mirror again. And that's something that I think a lot of guys go through the first time they see something traumatic happen at work. I've been a cop a long time. This was not the last person that I was with when they died. I wish it was. It's not the last kid that I was with when they died. And it's definitely not the last kid or person that I saw die of some traumatic injury. But it was my first. And because of that, I, I think that'll be with me for the rest of my life. Anytime something like that happens to a person, as they move on with their life, they take lessons from it. And as I said in my intro, probably the greatest lessons I learned in my entire life, I learned from my interaction with that 10-year-old girl on the side of Route 126 in October in 2004. I learned a lesson that a lot of people don't learn until it's too late in their life. I learned that these, these meat sacks that we walk around in are far more fragile than we like to believe. Far, far more fragile than we want to believe. I learned that life's not fair. That what we deserve in life is irrelevant. Sadie didn't deserve, as a 10-year-old girl, to die on the side of Route 126. What we deserve in life is irrelevant to what happens to us. And that some things, that sometimes, bad things just happen. And there's very little that we can do about it. Except live our lives to the best of our ability. I learned to cherish the sweet and innocent things that I have that make life worth living. I think about 
that incident a lot. Probably every week I think about that incident. And it's more, more so now I think about that incident that I'm a father. That I have two little kids that are younger than Sadie was at the time. And so it changes the way I look at my life and how I live my life. I don't ever go to work angry at my kids. I try not to ever go to work angry at my wife. I kiss them goodnight every night. If I leave the house to go somewhere, go work out at the gym, just go to the corner store, I kiss everybody goodnight before I leave. And I tell people that I love them. And I make my kids tell people that they love them. I've got elderly moms and dads and grandparents all over the place. And where this could happen to anybody, we know that there's limited time that we have with our loved ones, especially as they begin to age. So I tell my kids, you know, go tell Gigi that you love her and you'll see her later. Go tell Gigi bye-bye. And sometimes they complain. And they say, no, no, no. You get over there and you tell her you love her and goodbye. And give her a kiss. But I make sure they make a habit of doing that every time they go there. And the same thing with my mom and my grand and you know my grandfather and my dad and their great-grandfather. And I make sure that they don't ever have to remember that the last interaction they had with, you know, great grandma was being mad at her or saying, no, I don't want to kiss her goodbye. Because life is too short. And anybody that's lived a little bit of it knows that. And it could be over at any time. And while we're never prepared for that to happen, it's nice to be able to, to know that if you left, what people would remember of you, the last thing people would remember of you would be something positive. Even though this happened very early on in my public safety career, it taught me a lot of things in my professional life. And it influences the things that I'm willing to do in my professional life and how I look at public safety in general and my part in it. I learned that at the end of the day, and you guys have heard me say this before, the most important thing is that you're able to look yourself in the mirror. And this means a lot of things. And it can mean different things to different people. I like to tell new guys, live a life worth losing. Which means go out there and live your life so that if you lost it today, you could say, well, maybe this is the end, but I gave it my all. I did what I was supposed to do. I feel at peace with the things that I've accomplished. And especially this last thing that I've accomplished. There's a lot of risk versus reward in law enforcement. And I'm sure there is in the EMS services too. And when we take those risks, I very often talk, and I know I've talked to all of you before, about calculated risks. We take a calculated risk that we mitigate risks. But mitigating risk doesn't mean that we don't take them. When we look at the risk versus reward and we're asking ourselves, 
is this worth dying over? Which is something we should be asking ourselves every time we go around on the left. Every time we go through that red light without slowing down enough. Every time we walk through that doorway not knowing what's on the other side. And every time we go through a door knowing that something very sinister or something very crazy or something very dangerous is on the other side of it. Professionally, it changes the amount of risk that intellectually I'm willing to take on on a legal basis. A lot of people, no matter what the crime is, a lot of cops I know, no matter what the crime is, they will say 100% on the okay side of case law. And I'm not talking about breaking the law here, but I'm talking about how law is established and how we do our jobs to make sure we can look ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day. Case law evolves. The reason Terry stops exist is because something that cops were doing so that they could look at themselves in the mirror at the end of the day got challenged and got determined that it was okay. And every day there's cops out there who are out making case law when it has to be made to protect people's lives. And there are cops out there who are deciding not to make that case law because they're afraid that if they do it, they're going to get hung out to dry. Realizing the fragility of life, especially children, innocent people who have nothing to do with the violent circumstances they find themselves in, has made me more willing to make case law when the alternative is not being able to look myself in the mirror the next day. I never expected to learn these types of life lessons from a chance encounter with a 10-year-old on the side of a highway. Just like she never expected to meet me and no one who was in those cars expected to be in a crash that night. I'm sure everyone got in their car that night, buckled in, expecting to arrive safely at their location at the end of the night. They're probably going to go home and pick up their you know, 10-year-old daughter and put her in bed and tuck her in. And they fully expected that that's what was going to happen. The memories that I got that night and the lessons that I learned have stayed with me to this day. Not a week goes by in all those years that I haven't thought about that incident. And the lessons I learned that night have guided me as a cop, a father, a husband, and a man. As painful as they were, I don't think I would trade them for the world. And for all of that, I'm eternally grateful to Sadie, a young girl that I barely met and that I can never repay for the impact she's had on my life. I've always struggled with the idea of contacting Sadie's family. 
and I still struggle with it. I know that after this many years, it would probably open old wounds to even talk, for them to even talk with someone about what happened, especially a a person they've never met, has no real interest outside of, you know, the 10, 15 minutes that they, they knew the young girl. But I hope that by sharing my story with all of you and the lessons I learned from it, it gives you some perspective, especially those of you who are just coming on the job or think about becoming police officers or firefighters or paramedics or something like that, about the realities of the job and how important your perspective coming into it is and why it's important to keep that perspective so that 20, 25, 30 years when you retire, you can look yourself in the mirror and know that you've done the right thing. And if the worst comes to worst and you find yourself in your last moments because of something that happened on the job, you can leave at peace with the decisions that you've made in your life, that you've lived a life worth losing. I know that's a little darker than normal for all you guys. And I'm not going to apologize for it. It's dark out tonight. And it's something that's been playing on me for a while. People always ask me about talking about incidents from the street and lessons that I've learned from them. And maybe we can do more of that in the future. But this is one that I think there's so many very critical lessons to be learned from it and and teach so many good things that I wanted to be the first one that I share with all of you. So, a few items. uh, Paying the bills around here and letting you know what's coming up in the future. Patches. Patches are around. People are still buying them. They're still leaving. Uh, At some point, I'm going to have to buy more of them because they've been selling, which is good. Uh, People from overseas are sending messages saying that they've gotten their patches in. So if you've ordered one and you're overseas... It's sent U.S. mail, and they've been making it. Sometimes it takes three or four days for them to get there, but they've been getting there. Uh, If you're from any country and you're having trouble getting the patches, send me an email, let me know, and I will work on the website to get them gotten to you. I just sent one to Australia. should be there in a little bit. Uh, Videos coming up. I'm trying to do more skill set level videos. I've got uh, building searches and my duty bag, which is coming out. I've got a flashlight video, which I'm probably going to put out. Uh, tomorrow or the day after, and I have, those are all up on the Patreon right now, I am working on getting a squad car to do a police car tour with, and I have a taser coming in, I have a taser, but it's works taser, and it records everything, so I can't use works taser for videos, because it records, when you turn the safety on and off, it records that the safety was on and off, so I had to go, we're borrowing up a taser, so I can do some taser videos, I'm getting a vest from Safe Life Defense to put on and get tased while wearing. That should be exciting. I'm thinking about one way or the other getting tased. Because somehow my video of me getting tased when I first got hired got lost. And my buddy who is a taser instructor has agreed to come in with a bunch of my buddies from work. And we're going to do some taser stuff. I also want to, if I have the time before the taser has to, you know, go back to the original owner who needs it for work, I'm going to set up 
and do a video of how tasers work. Maybe I'll get the taser instructor to come in and explain in a little more detail how tasers work, and then I'll like mellow it down for everybody. I want to make one where you can see the leads and you can actually see the prongs and stuff. Maybe we'll integrate all that into the vest video. It's always nice when we do a product type video to to insert some subliminal intelligence, a little subliminal knowledge in there for everybody, a little education into the product review videos. So that's what we've got going on. The podcast, I've been listening to the podcast that uh, two guys talking are making and producing, and hopefully the website should be up soon. The link's down in the description. Go bookmark that thing so that way you don't miss out on the podcast when they're first happening. And that's about it. That's about it for the record-keeping stuff and paying the bills and all of that. Oh, there's uh, if you go down in the description, what used to be a completely revolver-based website, now Civilian Defender, uh, Dr. Sherman House is organizing that, and he has a website with a bunch of articles. He is a medical doctor, and he does tactical stuff. So go check that out. The link is down in the description. I think you guys will like it. He's got a lot of stuff. He actually sent me the original back and forth that we had. He was sending me about headshots or no guarantee, the video that I made, YouTube video, talking about somebody that had come in who had been shot through the mouth and walked into his office because he was having trouble swallowing. And he had never been treated for the headshot that he took with a 45. So it's an interesting website. Go check that out. And there was something else I was supposed to bring up, but I don't remember what it was. So now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we are going to go to all your comments and questions. Feel free to keep putting them in there. Since I'm pretty sure that the powers that be are not going to like this video very much, uh, we're just going to go with it until my battery dies on one of the devices that I'm recording on, and then we'll cut it off. But until then, we're just going to take comments. So I'm going to go up to the top, and we're going to take the first comments first, and the last comments last. And we'll see what all of you have to say. We're going to try to do ones where people actually have questions. This isn't a question, but Dan, Dan, who is pretty much a character on free field training now, says, send nudes. No one wants to see nudes of me. Trust me. <laughs> Nobody. You look cold. I am a little cold. It's a little chilly in here. I shut the engine off on the car to get you guys better audio. I hope you appreciate it. Adam says, hey, Tommy, just raised my right hand and entered the Air Force delayed entry program two weeks ago, and your channel definitely had an influence on that decision. I'm glad it helped, man. Good luck on your journey. Let me know how it turns out for you. I was never in the service, and I actually kind of regret that. Although there's nothing for me to regret, I tried to join the service. In fact, I tried to join any service that would listen to me. Unfortunately, at the time, if you had had surgery on your feet after the age of four, they weren't taking you. So that kind of ruled me out. William Salmeron says, What is the best advice you'd give a new post commander in the security field, been in the industry for two years now in LA and Cali. The best advice I could give anybody who's a manager of something, if you have any decision-making ability in who you get, who you hire, get the very best people you possibly can. Because in the end of the day, the entire public safety industry, but definitely law enforcement and security is a human resources industry. It's about how you manage human resources. And just like if you're driving a car, right? If you drive a automatic transmission all-wheel drive car, it's real easy to drive. Those are your employees that come to work, 
and do their job and don't do dumb things. If you buy yourself a tractor with an enclosed cab, you might have a little more trouble driving it around. You know, you drive a manual transmission car, it's going to be a little harder to drive. If you drive a car with no exhaust, with four bald tires and no brakes, that's a manual with the clutch going bad, you're going to have a problem. And all too often in the security industry, that's what you end up getting when you hire people. So find somebody that's the equivalent of having a clutch, having brakes, and an exhaust before you go hiring them so that you don't have problems later on down the road. For myself, with, with security, it, it seems that the two groups of people who do the best are like young people who are trying to get a better job, like actively trying to get into law enforcement or the military or something like that, and they're kind of waiting until they get one of those jobs, and older people who have just recently retired who want a job that they can go to, and as long as they do it well, nobody messes with them. And everybody that's in between seems to kind of cause problems unless they're in it for the long haul. Security tends to be one of those jobs where people are like, oh yeah, I was a security guard for like four months, and eh, it wasn't for me, right? There's like a boatload of those people, and if you've been in the security industry for two years, you know there's a lot of turnover. So be careful of that turnover by hiring quality people, and not just the most qualified people, but people that you can work with, that just, you look at them and you go, oh, what do you want to do? Well, they've got aspirations if they're a young person, or if they're an older person, they say, well, I want a job, and I want to be able to have it for the next four or five years, and I want a steady schedule. You got some midnights available for me? I like to work midnights, stay away from the wife in the middle of the night. I got things I got to do in the morning, I don't want to miss church. Those are the people that you need. U.S. Marine 13657 says, Hello, I have a question. What do I do if I shoot someone breaking in my apartment and I am from Ohio? I don't know because I'm not from Ohio. My suggestion would be, before that happens, go talk to a competent attorney about that. There are people who specialize in that type of thing. James Polsecki says, This is the human side to law enforcement. It's a side I don't think people talk about, and I don't honestly know why. I don't think there's any reason not to talk about it. I think a lot, maybe some people think they're going to be seen as being weak. But at this point in my life and at this point in my career, I don't care if people think that I'm weak because I watched a 10-year-old little girl die. That's going to hurt anybody. That's going to change anybody's life. And if it doesn't, I don't want to work with them because they're a lunatic. Like, that's some heavy stuff. And I think we should talk about it. I think it's good to talk about it. I think we'd have a whole lot fewer personnel problems in law enforcement if we talked about it more. Dan says, oh wait, Dan is making a legitimate heartfelt comment. Or maybe he had something in there. Dan says, as a guy in traffic, you got my sympathies, dude. Seeing ghastly, mangled, and unrecognizable figures torn to tatters and strewn about is something you can never get used to. Makes me decrepit emotionally. People don't often talk about the, the things that you can't unsee. You know, in, in police work, you're going to see things that can't be unseen. And they're going to change you. And not always for the better. I don't do a lot of traffic, but I understand people who are passionate about traffic enforcement. Because with the things that I've seen on the job, I can understand how someone would be like, well, no, we need to stop that. People need to stop turning left when there's a red light. 
People need to slow down and not do 120 because this is the stuff that happens when that happens. And although it's not my gig and I'm not into doing traffic enforcement, I understand why guys are passionate about it. I'm just not passionate about it. John Pedersen says, people think traffic is such an easy gig, they don't think of this side of it. I don't know who thinks traffic is an easy gig. Everybody that's in traffic division where I'm at is stuck doing motor vehicle collisions and writing tickets all day. And that's not really my idea of a good time. So I don't, I don't know who, maybe somebody thinks that traffic division is an easy gig because they don't have to, maybe those are the people that don't want to have to go to domestics and they don't want to have to deal with violent crime. I would rather deal with domestics and I'd rather deal with violent crime than have to deal with people getting hurt all day and doing motor vehicle collisions all day and it being the worst day of normal people's lives every day. You know, we go to a domestic and it's the same people over and over and over and over and over again all the time fighting with each other and at a certain point you, you stop feeling sorry for them right you're like well this is the 20th time we've been here this month i kind of don't feel sorry for you anymore because we've given you all the resources we possibly can to help you out of this situation and you've decided that you're not going to follow through with the resources that are made available to you by the state but with traffic man you go to a motor vehicle collision and nine times out of ten it's just some normal person going home, driving to work, something like that, and you're part of the worst day of their life. And the absolute worst thing is to have to show up to a collision where it's a it's a fatality. And now you have to make notification of the family, the, the wife who expected her husband to be home in an hour. You're calling her and trying to explain that he's not coming home. I, I wouldn't want to do that for a living. I, I, I couldn't do traffic division for a living. I just couldn't. Especially not if you work somewhere where you're doing traffic division on the highway. The highway is where people get really, really seriously hurt. I've been to fatality collisions. Luckily, most of the time, it's to back the state police up on a fatality collision on the highway. I, I wouldn't want to be the guy that then has to do the administrative side to it, making notifications and stuff. Shootings are bad enough. Finding people in houses is bad enough. Having to call family members because I found their deceased loved one is bad enough. I, I don't need that. That's That would be just an added, added stressor on my life. And traffic division does more than that than almost anybody. Nine Packin says, Wow, deep stuff, Tommy. Thank you for sharing. I remember my first 10-0 crash. Young lady into the steering wheel. I was first on scene and had the same feeling of powerlessness. Yeah, around here... Some people refer to that as eating the airbag. I'm assuming what he means is she didn't have her seatbelt on and went flying forward. Let me give you a piece of advice. If you're driving around, don't drive around with your seatbelt off at any speed that you don't want to hit the windshield. And if the airbag deploys, know that that puppy's coming out at a pretty good speed too. Like in your steering wheel, there is a small amount of like a plastic explosive and it goes off so the airbag's coming at you while you're going forward. Bad stuff. Bad stuff happens when you don't have your seatbelt on. I know the electronics are getting better with that, but I've seen people who ate the airbag before. And that's not a good time. I've also seen people that have hit the windshield before. Especially front seat passenger. No good. Not pleasant. Trey Piero says, I have much respect for not only you sharing this experience with us, but how well you held yourself together telling this. I'll tell you this right now, I barely held it together, and 
I've had to rehearse this four or five times, and I made a whole bunch of notes, which you could probably see me looking down at, so that I could hold it together and think about the task at hand instead of about what I was talking about. That's part of getting through an experience like that, being able to work a case like that, is to be able to concentrate on what's important now, finding work and getting that work accomplished. When you're, you're a cop and you're showing up to a scene like that, you have to be able to triage the situation and not get emotionally involved in what you see. But most of the time, it's just not. It's not it's just not possible. You're going to, at a certain level, get emotionally involved with what you see when you see somebody that's had a traumatic injury. Especially when it's an innocent. When it's someone who could be nothing but an innocent. A little kid. I, I wasn't BSing you. I think about that that night all the time. I've seen horrible, horrible stuff. But that, it's still just thinking about it gets me. Antonio Guzman says, I'm sorry to hear that, but that's the thing about hindsight. You go back and you think what you could have or should have done, but didn't. It's especially hard when it's a child, but there was nothing you could do. And I eventually, you know, I, I came to terms. It took a couple months to come to terms with, well, there's there's nothing that I could have done. And, you know, my friend who was a volunteer firefighter helped me with that. He was, he was explaining, like, there's nothing anybody could have done. If you were a trauma surgeon and you had a hospital at your disposal, there's nothing anybody could have done with it. But it doesn't help at the time. Andrew Crichton says, any particular reason you wanted to talk about this tonight? It's just something I've been thinking about lately. I, it's been on the agenda for a couple of months. I want to do a live stream about it. I know that you know the, the powers that decide whether a video stays up are probably not going to like it. But... Now I have the ability to dual record it. I'm actually triple recording it. I've got a video camera running, and I've got a microphone running with a computer recording it and live streaming it. So one way or the other, this will always exist. If it doesn't exist on this platform that you're watching it on now, it will exist on some other platform as long as I have the ability to put it up and make it exist somewhere. But now that I have that ability, I'm using it. And that's why we're doing it tonight. And I was talking back and forth with some, some people at work and about, you know, things I could do live streams on. And this is something that came up that people were actually excited about. So I said, well, as good a time as any. We're going to do it tonight. And I got a night off. And it's night and it's dark. And the darkness kind of adds to the, the feeling of the video, I would say. Antonio Guzman said, you did do something that no one can take away, and that is, you were with her until the end, she wasn't alone. See, now you're going to make me cry. Now you're now you're going to get me. I just was getting all right again. Ben Cunningham says, you did what you could, Tommy. I don't know how you're able to share. Kids are always the hardest to respond to. I know damn well it's not easy to talk about, but it shows first responders are human. Oh, that's That's kind of the whole idea with this video. Thank you for commenting, and thank you for the work that you do, Ben. Kurda Kurda says, man, I am in the police academy right now and your videos are so dot, 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 good that gave me goosebumps, dot, 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 thanks. Thank you for watching, Kurda Kurda. Homero Mendoza says, about to graduate college, I'm 22 and looking into going state or federal, but not sure if I should go local so I can get some experience. Your videos help a lot. It opens my mind to what can happen. Thank you. Oh, we've got lots of videos over on the YouTube channel about state and county and 
local and federal agencies. And at the end of the day, what matters is which one you like more. You know, some guys get into federal policing, policing, and then realize it's not for them. I had a friend that was on uh, secret, actually a few friends that have been in secret service. One guy worked uniform division, loves it. Unmarried guy, travels the world. He's got pictures of himself with uh, female Israeli cops from the airport in front of Air Force One, you know, having a blast, having the time of his life. And another guy I know worked for Secret Service and now works as a local cop because he was sick of it. He never saw his family. He was never at his house. And he was just tired of being sent all over the place. I know guys that are state troopers and absolutely love it. Say it's the best job that they could ever imagine having. They love being able to just ride the highway. They love being able to hop in their car and log on from their car in their driveway and hit the closest highway and go to work. And I know other people that are like, I got stationed, you know, 20 miles away from where I'm supposed to be at and I hate it. And I'm sick of having to drive all that way to work, even if they give me the gas. And other people that are like, I got to drive all the way down to the academy this weekend in Springfield from Chicago. And this is hell. What agency you go to is about what fits you and your lifestyle and your goals in your life. My goals in law enforcement is to live my life in an exciting and entertaining manner so that when it's over, if somebody wrote a book about it, everyone would want to read it. I want to be able to say I've done everything I could possibly do. I checked them all off the bucket list and I had a blast while I was doing it. Other people think they're going to get rich in law enforcement. I don't know what they're smoking, but they think they're going to be the chief of the, you know, the Boston Police Department, make a quarter million dollars a year or more. I, I don't think that's a realistic goal, but if that's your goal, have at it. And some people just they want to be an important person. You know, they want to advance. They want to have a career. They want to make captain or commander or whatever. And some people want to be on a national stage. You know, if you if you want to be seen standing next to the president, then being in federal law enforcement could be the way for you to do that. You know, if you want to be the guy that protects uh, nuclear weapons, you know, being a U.S. Marshal would be the way to do that. But it's about what's interesting to you in your life and what fits the things and the goals that you want to do. Whatever it is, go out there and try it. Don't settle for something else. If you want to go into local law enforcement, go into local law enforcement. If you want to try to go federal, try to go federal. Don't go local and say, well, one day I want to go federal. Aim, Aim big. Go for what you want to go for. And if you end up somewhere else that you like more, there's no shame in that. Trey Piero says, both her parents live, who is at fault? I looked up the, the news article for this, and I read it once, and then I didn't want to read it again. It's my understanding that her parents weren't in the car, that it was, I think, an uncle and the grandpa, or uncle and grandma were in the car, something like that. And then uh, the, the two guys that were in the other car that was flipped over, uh, I knew at the scene that both of them had passed away. I don't know who was at fault. There was something in there that one of the cars passed over the center line or, or like ran off the road because Route 126 at the time, I'm not sure it still is anymore, it was a two-lane blacktop road and there's gravel on both ends. So if your car gets over into the gravel, there's like no median, it's just gravel. Your car gets onto the gravel, it's going to suck your wheels over and, and you compensate. A lot of people will overcompensate and spin the car out. And that's kind of what I was gleaning from the, the news, but I've been on the news enough to know that the news... Like 90% of the time is wrong about what they, they put out there anyway. Most of it's 
complete garbage. They just, I think sometimes I think the news media just makes up and it's not even for any specific reason. We've talked before with like the note taking that people just invent details when they need details. They assume things about things. I think that's what the news media does with a lot of stuff. I've been in enough news articles like, where do they get this from? We didn't do that. And they're like, everybody's like, well, that's what all the news media is saying. I'm like, no, they invented that. That that came out of some guy's mind. That never happened. MG says, that's the reason to never be a street cop. Death. You know, everybody dies. Me, you, everyone who's watching this someday will die. They're not going to be here anymore. Life, your life will end. When I get done with this, I'm going to go drive to the gym. And on the way to the gym, someone could cross the center line and go head on with my car and I could die. And this could be the last you ever hear of me. Avoiding that, avoiding life to avoid death doesn't make any sense. Because death doesn't have any meaning if you never lived your life. No. To hell with that. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be a street cop because I love it. Because it's where I can do the most good. And I'm never going to avoid it because of death. Death's out there. It's a real part of life. It's just street cops have to face that head on sooner in life than most people do. Most people don't realize that their life ends until they're in their 50s. And they look at it and go, oh, I'm halfway done at least. And I hate to break it to most of them, but most of them don't get another 15, 20 years out of it. A street cop knows early on in their life that this isn't guaranteed. And that you have to live your life and make it worth living. You guys follow me on Instagram, you see that I don't live in a nice house. I don't drive a nice car. I take my kids on vacation. Not extravagant vacations. I'm talking about going to a water park, going on a hike, taking the kid to gymnastics, taking the kid to Cub Scouts, having experiences with them. Because when it's time for my ticket to be punched, I want to know that I did those things. It's not going to matter that I drove a BMW. It's not going to matter that I had a three-story house with 10 bedrooms. It's going to matter what people remember of me and how much life I got out of this life. What was the quote from Braveheart? All men die, but not all men really live. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Antonio Guzman says, I'm a civilian, but I I am too. <laughs> Police officers are civilians. Antonio Guzman says, I'm a civilian, but I know how you feel. I wanted to be a police officer, but unfortunately, because of my cerebral palsy, I couldn't make the force, but I have the mentality of a police officer. Being a cop is just one element of public service. I'm a scout leader. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. You know, I, there's lots of ways that I'm involved in my community. I'm involved in public safety. And Antonio, I bet you if you look around, you'll find that there's lots of ways that you can be involved in public safety too. So if you want to be, I suggest you go out and try. Find something you can do that brings you into the fold of that community, even very small things. I'm not talking about going and working security or finding you know, some job doing it, but there's lots of people that they volunteer at their church. And they volunteer at their church, and they, when they, while they're there, they get to help people who are having problems in their life. Maybe that's for you. 
Andy Tory says, I want a patch. Well, you can either find me at a fundraiser in real life, or you can go to freefieldtraining.com slash merch. There's a link down in the description right now. You click on that. It's like $10 shipped inside the U.S. $10 plus $6, so $16 total to ship it international. And I normally mail them out next day or the day after, whenever the post office next opens. KT9040 says, you were strong for sharing this. People bottle it up and never talk about it, only to have it blow up in their face. You remind us how death can come at any moment. Live, love, learn, thank you. Bottling it up is the worst possible thing you can do. You, you can't always talk about it with everyone, but you need to have people in your life that you can talk about it with. I have friends at, at work and at home that I can share things with. There's people that I, you know, I've been friends with for 25 years. You've seen some of them on the videos. You know, they're in the background or they're doing other stuff. These are people that are my close friends that I can sit around a campfire and philosophize about life with. And very often do. Not when it's freezing cold out like right now, but we go camping during the summer and we have parties and stuff. And whenever we can, we go sit around a campfire and everybody talks about their life and what's going on with it. And it's kind of, it was one of my ways of venting to my peers. And it's worked really well for me. I guess I'm kind of well-adjusted because of it. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm completely normal, but I'm kind of well-adjusted because I have a support structure that's been around for, you know, with, for me for over 20 years. A lot of my friends. James Pulaski says, you already put a flashlight video out this morning. Yeah, but I got another one coming. Uh, that was a flashlight uh, uh, through night sent to me. It's a nice light. Not real useful as a duty light. Because it doesn't have a momentary switch. I really like momentary switches. I have to agree with Dan. I really like mo momentary switches for a duty light. But as like a bag light for you know certain circumstances, especially field searches, things like that, it's great. And uh, Josh, who is a detention aide at a local agency here, uh, and I've become kind of friends with, has loaned me a couple things in the past for videos that I needed. He lent me ass handcuffs for one of the videos because I don't own ass, ass handcuffs. And uh, he lent me uh, Olight. I forget what model it is, but I'm going to put that video out. Because there's no reason to wait. Hey, videos. Darklights32324 says, What's the worst accident you have been in? Uh, I slid backward into a building once on the snow. That was exciting. I don't suggest it. Texas Pondhopper says, You should move to Texas. I've been to Texas. Texas is a lot... It's, it's nice. It's the dry heat. There really is a dry heat. But I went there in the winter and I could barely take how warm it is. I don't know if I could deal with Texas. Texas is a little warm. I'll take my snow and cold over, over the Texas heat any day. We're going to take a quick break here at Free Field Training Podcast. While you're listening to the words from the people that helped me do all this, head over to freefieldtrainingpodcast.com, click on the contact button, and send me your thoughts about this episode. We'll be right back. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now 
by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Darkly enchanted objects. The trio of heroes who have decided to find them all. You remember this series from the 1980s. You just don't remember the name. Check out the Curious Goods podcast. A retelling, a revisit, and complete educational detailing of each episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Check it out now at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. That's CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with The Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Everyone, welcome back to the Free Field Training Podcast. Matt Cox says, was there really a Chicago police officer killed today? Yeah, there was a, a commander, a Chicago police commander that was killed at the Thompson Center. He was shot multiple times. If you don't know what a commander is, a pretty high level kind of administrative position, the Chicago Police Department, he didn't have to go chase some dude with a gun into a stairwell. And he did it anyway. And so I like to think that when something like that happens, at least he went out doing what he loved. Because if he didn't love doing it, he wouldn't have done it. As a commander at the Chicago Police Department, he could have easily just assigned that to someone else to do. He could have got on the radio and been like, I'm in command. Send people over there. But yeah, he did. He did. There was a Chicago Police Commander that passed away today from gunshot injuries in downtown. <laughs> William Wheat, 37, says... You ever buy firearms at the Cabela's on the other side of the river? My dad said you look familiar. I should look familiar. <laughs> I should look very familiar if he hangs out at that Cabela's. I know exactly which one you're talking about. He isn't the guy that uh, that fishes at the Aldi across the street, does he? There's a little opening there, and there's always a guy out there fishing in the summertime. Or does he work at Cabela's? Uh, George Incredible says, good video. Would you make a video about the academic requirements for police officers? I'd appreciate that. I already have one. If I remember, I will put it down in the description or I'll put a link up there about the academic requirements. But it is in there. It's in one of the playlists. I think it's, uh, so you want to be a cop? Check out that playlist on YouTube. And it is in there talking all about the academic requirements to be a police officer. They're, they're very varied is the best way to put it. Everything from, you know, GED only required with experience to places that want a bachelor's degree. And it all depends on where you want to work and what time of work you want to do. Antonio Guzman says, I'm looking, I'm just looking forward to you getting tased. I'm not looking forward to me getting tased, but I guess if it has to happen, it'll happen. We'll be all right. I'll make it. I've been tased like four times before. Some of them were on purpose. So... It's, it's not, it's not terrible. What I'm really not looking forward to is I want to do an OC spray video, but that does, that is going to involve me getting OC spray. 
because no one's going to volunteer for that. The only person that's ever going to get OC'd is going to be me because all of my friends have been OC'd before. None of them are going to do it again. They all hate it. They hate it as much or more than I do. So I'm going to have to do that, and that I'm looking forward to way less than getting tased again. A. Galv says, what do you do to help cope with everything? Well, there's a lot of mechanisms that I have to help cope with stress from police work. Uh, I like to exercise, although you wouldn't know it from looking at me in profile. Uh, I, you know, I hang out with my family. I go camping. I, I've got the scouting program. I lots of stuff. I don't drink a lot. That kind of helps. Helps, you know, keep the stress down in the marriage. It's marriage stress only exacerbates stress in public safety. Trevian4133 says, have you ever lost a partner? Thankfully not. Thankfully I have never had that problem. And hopefully I never do. There's people that I've worked with who have been shot before. It's not pleasant. Uh, luckily none of them were very, very seriously injured. Uh, there's cops that I have met before who ended up passing away from injuries on the job. I, I can't say that I was ever friends with any of them, but they were people that I had met that died. And that's the closest I've ever gotten to having lost a partner. And then my partner for a while decided he was going to go to TAC and keeps trying to convince me to go to TAC. So I guess I kind of lost him because we don't get out to go out and play on midnights anymore. But that does, I'm sure that's not what you meant. Jman19920 says, what is your recommendation on preparing for police oral review board? My recommendation for preparing for the police oral review board is to wear a suit. Doesn't matter if you're a guy or girl, wear a suit. Bring a notepad. Bring a couple questions that you want to ask about the agency, specifically about like personnel issues, right? Ask about the insurance plan and stuff like that. And be respectful. I'll give you a piece of advice. If the chief is on your review board, you refer to him as chief. You refer to her as chief. Not Mr. Whatever. Whatever they say their name is, their name to you is chief. <laughs> it's a respect thing. I can't guarantee you that's a respect thing all across the country, but where I'm at, that's when a person reaches that level, even after retirement, you refer to him as chief. How do you make your application or resume stand out? By being honest on it and having, before you apply for a police job, having done public service that isn't involved with getting paid. That's the best way to do it. What you want is to, you know, like I put on my application, I was in scouting for 20 years and I did all the stuff and I worked at these camps and things like that. I was heavily involved and that makes your application stand out that there's a bunch of people that also are heavily involved with those types of giving back activities who are your references. Texas Pondhopper says, what do you think about the Springfield XDM 9mm for a duty pistol? Well, here's what I have to say about that. Springfield XDs were a third-rate pistol, and I know you probably own one, that's why you're asking, but they were a third-rate pistol made by some no-name country in Croatia 15 years ago, right? And uh, Springfield bought the rights to them, and they're still a third-rate pistol from a no-name company in Croatia now. There's just better marketing behind them now. I know that's going to upset a lot of people. I don't care. It's the truth. I'm not saying that it's a bad pistol, but I will tell you that it's not the best pistol that you can get. 
and I wouldn't buy one as a duty pistol. Now, if I was issued one at work, I would make the best of it, and it, it wouldn't change whether or not I thought I could do my job safely, but I would be very careful about all those little tiny parts in the back of the gun that have this tendency of breaking, because they do, and I would make sure that when it's fully loaded, I can actually get the fully loaded mag out in case I have a double feed, because that is definitely a problem with XDMs. 9mm XDMs have had that issue in the past. I've seen a couple of them that had those problems. There's been a variety of other problems with the uh, the XDM series. But I know people that use them, and they're very happy with them. So if you like it, then have that. The triggers are really nice. They're very accurate pistols. But I have noticed that they're not as reliable as some of the other pistols that are in that price bracket. I would have been more excited about the XDM if the original XDs had the same capacity and the same trigger that the XDM did and were the price bracket that the original Springfield XD pistols were. I'd be much, it'd be much easier for me to look past the reliability issues that they have and suggest it to someone who's not, you know, a really heavy, a really heavy volume, high volume shooter. If it wasn't for those issues, if you weren't a high volume shooter, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, XDM, you know, if it was still a $250, $300 gun, like it was 15 years ago, I'd say, well, yeah, hey, you don't have a lot of money, you're a new guy, this is a gun, it'll get the job done. Yeah, they have long-term durability issues, but you're talking 5, 10 years down the road, long-term durability issues. And to be honest, they're the same type of long-term durability issues that I've had with 40 caliber Glock pistols. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, (laughs) as I'm trying to get to. But for a 9mm pistol, you can find one that is much more long-term reliable than an XDM. And I know that's not going to be popular with people that get paid to hawk those things, but I don't care. I've got no like, I got no no dog in that race. That's been my experience with them. Brandon Coots, while we're talking about pistols, says, "What do you think about the new Sig Sauer P365? Also, tips on applying for a different agency without current agency finding out. I know officers who have been fired or demoted for looking around. All right, we'll take the last one first because it's the most important one. That's rough." That's, that's really rough. I'm sorry that, that people have had those problems. If that's you, I'm really sorry that you've had those problems. I don't know. I can't imagine my department being angry and like trying to fire or demote me because I looked around at other agencies. People in my department, when I look at another agency, they know. Like I talk about it at breakfast. Everybody knows. You know, a few months back, the zoo police were going to lateral a experienced police officer in as a sergeant. So like, dude, I went and looked and my bosses knew I was doing that. And they laughed. They're like, there's, there's no way you're going to go to leave to be the zoo police. Right. But I went and looked into it. Cause what does it hurt me to look into it? You know, that's rough. I don't know. I don't have any tips or tricks for that because I've never, never had to experience it. Hopefully someone else in the comment stream has given you some advice on that. Now, what do I think about the new Sig Sauer P365? I haven't had any experience with it. I haven't been able to handle one. They're not in gun shops around here. However, uh, Harry's Holsters has a channel, and because he makes holsters, he has one. (laughs) And he has actually done a series of comparison videos between the Sig P365 and all the other single-stack 9mm he has. And since he does lots of inside-the-waistband concealed carry holsters... He owns all of those guns and shoots them regularly and he has opinions on it and stuff. So you can go check out, like, he's got a series of videos on the the Sig P365, like, comparison of them. And it looks exciting, but I haven't played with one yet. 
I've played with the Sig P320, and I really like those. I may get that as my next duty weapon when I need a new duty weapon, but I haven't played with the Sig P365, and I won't just philosophize about it if I don't honestly know. So check out his videos and see if it's worth it to you. If you already own a Glock 26 or you already own a Glock 43, you might not want to switch over to get the Sig P365. But if you don't own any single-stack 9mm handguns or double-stack, you know, small, subcompact 9mm handguns, it'd definitely be worth looking at from everything I've seen. But I don't have any personal experience with it. Soccerman174 says, Hey now, don't be hating on stick shift, LOL. I'm not hating on stick shift. Stick shifts can have great crime deterrence capabilities. Nothing keeps idiots from stealing your car like buying a stick shift car. Because very few people can drive them anymore. I can drive it. You're probably, this day and age, in 2018, you're probably pretty limited to who could steal your car between me, you, some truck drivers, a few farmers that, you know, drive tractors, dudes that drive forklifts. Like, it's it's a pretty pretty slim market now of who could who could steal your stick shift car. So, it's a great crime deterrence thing, you know, nobody's going to steal your car. But I don't think, if you drive a stick shift on a daily basis, I don't think you're going to tell me that it's as easy as driving an automatic. Like, driving a stick shift is something you do because you have to for work or for the love of the sport, you know, or you work in such a bad place that you don't want someone stealing your car, or you drive a Jeep Wrangler and you don't want somebody stealing your Jeep Wrangler. You know, like, that's why you do it now. You don't have to do it. Like, I would never buy a stick shift car for my wife and be like, oh, you're going to learn how to drive stick shift because she's not going to learn because it's difficult. Jay Cruzado says, what was the reaction at work like today? hearing about the CPD commander. I wasn't at work today. I was off today, thankfully. I got court in the morning, but uh, I was off today. And uh, the news didn't come out when I was at work, so I don't know what the reaction was at work. I'm sure it's the same as it is everywhere else. Texan2V says, Serious question. Should I leave out previous employers from my police application? I walked out of two employers when I was in high school. If they want all of your prior employers, then you need to put down all your prior employers because a background investigation could reveal your prior employers you didn't tell them about. And it doesn't matter when that happens, that it comes out, they can still fire you for it. I know people who have worked places for 10 years and they found out that they lied on their application and they terminated them. So it behooves you to not leave things out of your application if they ask for it. Now, if they ask for all your employers in the last 10 years, and that was 15 years ago, you don't have to volunteer that information if they only ask for your prior employers for the last 10 years. And some places don't ask for all of your prior employers. They just ask for the, the recent prior employers. You know, your last two employers sometimes, and sometimes they say you're all your employers for the last 10 years. Because they don't want to, nobody cares that you work the hot dog stand, right? The, the background investigator can say, oh yeah, he had this stuff with the hot dog stand, but that was eight years ago or that was 15 years ago, and, and be able to be like, eh, that's not, not really pertinent anymore. But if they ask for it and you don't put it in there, you can get yourself in some trouble. Andre Torrey says, how many more years of service before you throw in the towel? All right, well, you know, August, I'll have had 12 years on. And I'm eligible, I'm vested now to retire. After eight years, I'm vested in our pension 20 years, I could theoretically retire, but I won't have age. I have to have 27 years to get age. So, I'm going to be a cop for a while. <laughs> it's going to be a while. Don't make me math in my head this late at night. It's going to be a while. Alex S. Rays asked, 
Do police departments like military reservists? That depends on the agency. Some places are, are really, really accepting of people being in military reserves, getting their time off for training and all that. And some of them, to be honest with you, give guys crap about it. So if you're in the reserves, you probably want to look into that before you go taking your job. Kelso Loke says, I think all cops should have mandatory counseling for psychological trauma. It's it's becoming kind of the norm now that if you're involved in a critical incident, you have to go see the head shrinker, but it's not it's by far not universal. Normally now it's only a critical incident where like somebody's killed, like there's a, a lethal use of force. They'll send a new head shrinker, but it's kind of pushing that way. I know the dispatchers have come a long way in getting psychological days off and being able to see the shrink on the department's dime when something happens and they have to take the radio calls. They actually have more than beat cops where I'm at, which is interesting, but I digress. Texas Pondhopper asks, are departments scared to hire infantrymen because we were trained to kill? No, as long as you're psychologically stable, it doesn't matter. The vast majority of police work has nothing to do with guns or killing or use of force or any of that. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of talking to people. It's a lot of, all right, let's figure out what we're going to do with this. You know, it's, all right, you don't get along with him because he stole the remote control. What are we going to do with this? A person who's psychologically unstable, who lives in their mom's basement, and has never done anything in their whole life is just as bad for a police department as a person who's psychologically unstable because they've seen some crazy stuff in the military. On the plus side, if they've seen some crazy stuff in the military, hopefully they're getting some help for it. I don't think police departments are scared to hire military veterans because of PTSD or because of their previous training. If anything, the training could come in handy if you were in a type of job where the stuff that you were trained on would be applicable. I work with a bunch of military policemen that, you know, switched over and came to civilian law enforcement. And a lot of their stuff is applicable. They say the handgun training is better and the vests don't smell as bad, but, you know, a lot of the training was applicable and a lot of their experience was applicable. Beast Lawn TV says, In Detroit, within the last two weeks, we've had two officers killed and three shot. When you hear about incidents like this, does it affect you mentally? Anytime I hear about that, I always think about, you know, that person had a family. And it especially affects you as a police officer when you see a person who's at the same stage in their career that you're at, that that happens to. Because we all want to think, well, that would never happen to me. That could never happen to me. That's not going to happen to me. But then, you know, when it happens, when I see on the news that, you know, the the 10-year veteran officer who was, you know, riding with a trainee that he was teaching was shot and killed responding to a domestic and he survived by his wife and two small children. That makes me think. That makes me rethink my invincibility. And whether we want to believe it or not and whether we want to admit to ourselves or not, all of us have a little bit of that invincibility complex in the back of our head. We all want to believe that it's not going to be us. Just like people that live in terrible neighborhoods you hear them all the time. You're like, oh, I've never heard of something like this happening around here. And you go, did you look out your door? Look out your door. This stuff happens all the time. So when I hear about things like that, it, it makes me second guess my invincibility. But maybe that's a good thing for a police officer to be grounded 
in the concept that, you know, I'm not invincible, that bad things can happen to me. And being a 10-year veteran is not going to change that. Being a 20-year veteran is not going to change that. We had a Chicago police officer not long ago, maybe a couple of years ago now, that he went on a call alone uh, on a bus with a you know psychologically troubled person, and she ended up killing him. And that guy was like a 30-year veteran or something, 25-, 30-year veteran. Could happen to any of us. The most experienced of us. The guy that's you know a master of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and does pistol shooting competitions, he can get killed on the job, and it's happened before in police work. I think the other one that affects me a lot is when I hear about someone that died and they were really new on the job. We had a kid out here, kid. Uh, his name is Nick Schultz. He worked for a police department out here. You can Google him up if you want. But uh, he he was shot in the head responding to a call. He was just walking down a hallway and a guy opened the door and shot him. So I hear. That was at his funeral not long ago. You know, that affects me because being in the position that I'm in, training people who are going to be new police officers, I know that the training that I give them, the things that I tell them, could make the difference between them being all right going to that call and them ending up in a casket. And that's a responsibility I take very seriously. Blaine Peterson says, don't airbags deploy at 150 plus miles an hour? I don't think they do anymore. I know back in the day they, they deployed very quickly. They don't deploy as quickly anymore. And the electronics have gotten better. From what I've heard, they won't deploy if the seatbelt's not on and certain circumstances aren't met. They're safer now, but that doesn't mean that it's 100% safe to drive. Like, it's not safe to drive around without your seatbelt on. You know, like, you're going to get hurt, especially on the highway. Dan says, eat the airbag and kiss the windshield. I guess in California, that's, that's, a, that's a thing that they say too. That's nice to know, Dan. Thanks. Ben Cunningham says, The family of the fatality always seems to leave a lasting memory. Sometimes I feel like they make a bigger impact on me. Making death notifications is always difficult. But I don't... I remember the victims more than I remember the family. Like, I remember having to go to the doorstep for the family and knocking on it. And after that, normally everything's kind of a blur because I have a job to do. One of the advantages of being focused on the job that you're doing. So I could see where that would be a thing for some people. It's just, it, it doesn't affect me as much as the initial victim. I hate making death notifications. Don't get me wrong. But after the first couple of minutes, it, it's kind of a blur. And then I, I, I think I can kind of forget about it. I don't remember everyone I've ever made a death notification to. I'm pretty sure I've, I remember every little kid that I found with a, a traumatic death. R.S. Ware, Riss Ware says, my dad was a police chaplain and years before that in EMT, he would do notifications with slash four officers. Very sad. I wish we had that here. We don't, we don't have chaplains here. I don't think I've ever met a police chaplain, but uh, I think it would be a good idea. It would be nice to have someone who's a professional in that regard to go with to make those types of notifications. SVF41 says, I'm an EMS night shifter. I feel you. I've been on nights for two months now. I also feel you. The worst stuff happens at night. Stay strong. Yeah, it's for some reason when something happens during the day. I think we did a video on this night shift versus day shift. But when something happens during the day, you don't know is this going to be bad? Is this not going to be bad? How bad is this going to be? 
when it's nighttime, man, all the crazies come out. And it very rarely you go to a call and you're like, oh, I'm glad this happened at 3 a.m. You know, like it's always the, the worst type of stuff that you're going to get happens after dark. And especially it seems right around 2 o'clock in the morning, people just lose all sense of morality. Eric Smith says, Richland, Richlands, North Carolina, we are put there at that point of friction to assist that family in their worst moment. I thank God for the strength to deal with it. Well, I'm glad you're there to deal with it. I don't like dealing with it. I having to deal with, you know, the families of somebody that's, you know, been killed in the car wreck is is a miserable, miserable job to have to do. I could see how for some people it would be fulfilling to know you were there to help them, and that is a nice way of looking at it. I just have a hard time making that perspective mesh with my brain. Memory Decipherer says, does Highway Patrol usually notify the family of the death more than sheriffs, deputies, slash police? Do police use the victim's cell phone if there's no ID to find info on the wreck victim? That's a huge topic. I don't know if the Highway Patrol notifies or the state police here notify families of uh, deaths more than sheriff's deputies or local police officers do. Uh, I wouldn't see numbers on that. I imagine that they they probably notify people of deaths about as much as we do. They do get a fair number of fatalities on the highway. Of course, depending on what municipality you're in, we get a fair number of fatalities from lots of other stuff. Uh, Do police use the victim's cell phone if there's no ID to find info on the wreck victim? Yeah, sometimes, uh, as long as it's not a criminal case, we can use the cell phone to try to find information on the wreck victims. I've used cell phones to try to get in contact with next to kin of people an awful lot. You go into somebody's cell phone, normally their last few contacts are going to be someone that's important to them. You find the person that they've called seven or eight times, that's probably their wife or mom or somebody else in the last you know, couple of days. You can call that number and try to get some information or try to make notification to the family. Dan the Deadwood says, ever had to respond to a motorcycle collision? Everyone who's ever had to respond to a motorcycle collision could never forget that they had to respond to a motorcycle collision. Yes. I responded to a fair number of motorcycle collisions. What motorcycles seem to do is take all the problems of a high-speed collision on the highway and make them happen when it's 35, 40 miles an hour on a surface street. Because you take all of the safety mechanisms of the car away and your body is what is impacting with whatever you hit. Motorcycle collisions are rough. Every time I think, wow, that motorcycle looks really cool, I go to a motorcycle wreck and I go, well, yep, no, we're not doing that. That's not happening. I don't want any part of this. I got a lot of friends that ride motorcycles. I ride ATVs at work. We've got ATVs that we can ride and take them out in the summertime and stuff. And it's fun. And I can see why people like motorcycles. But man, is that risky. I don't understand how guys do police like they do motor patrol on motorcycles. Like how cops go, well, let me take this job that, People wreck all the time and get killed in. Let me do it on a motorcycle. That takes some nuts. I know guys that that do motors, and that takes some serious balls, and you have to be a really confident rider to say, oh, I'm going to take the big steel cage that protects me normally when I'm doing this job, I'm just going to throw that out the window. We're going to ride a motorcycle and do it. That's rough stuff. Motorcycles, there's been talk in professional circles about getting rid of motors patrols because of how dangerous it is. I think it's really cool. <laughs> I know a lot of guys that really like it, and I'm sure for traffic enforcement, especially in states that don't allow 
agencies to use unmarked cars for traffic enforcement. Motorcycles make a lot of sense in congested, you know, downtown areas. Motorcycles make a whole lot of sense, especially in places that it's warm most of the year. Motorcycles make a lot of sense. They're cheaper than most squads. They're easier to maintain than most squads most of the time. You know, they get better gas mileage. Not that anybody really cares about that other than administrators, but they make a lot of sense for some stuff, but there has been talk about getting rid of them. Daniel Lopez asked, do you get any training for this kind of situation? For traumatic car wrecks, yeah, you get training for the car wreck. And you get training in first aid. What no one gives anybody training in, and what I kind of hope people glean from this video, nobody gets training in the mentality that allows you to get through it in your personal life. No one gets training on how to create the proper perspective where this isn't going to ruin you. No one gives you training for the psychological aspects of dealing with a bad car wreck or seeing a little kid get shot or seeing someone get crushed, seeing someone get caught between the train car and the station. They can train you for what to do in the situation and they can train you on the techniques of doing it and train you how to do it and when to do it, but they can't train you for the psychological effects of it. And I hope people get something from this video in that regard. Give you the proper perspective and the, tr the proper psychological armor to get through that situation. And maybe some methods that I use in my life that we've talked about that you can use in your life to try to, to mitigate some of the psychological risks of having to deal with circumstances like this. Kang 17 says, I had my first death to deal with a month ago. While in the line of duty, real big guy had a heart attack and died right in front of me. Couldn't imagine if it was a kid. That's rough. Yeah, it's. I live in a, I work, live and work in a fairly large town, and we have pretty robust EMS service. And a couple times a year, I end up being there when someone has a heart attack and having to pump on their chest while the paramedics do their magic, and we get them into the ambulance. And get him to the hospital. I have to play EMT for the day. You know, for all the people that are firefighters, for all the firefighters that try to say, ha, 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 cops just want to be a firefighter, no one, none of us want to be you. But I'll tell you, to have the skill set of paramedics while you're a cop would probably be pretty convenient sometimes. Sometimes I feel kind of useless on the paramedic calls. And so when we get somebody that has a heart attack and I can actually be like, hey, I have a skill for this. Hey, what can I do? And they're like, start pumping. You got it. I can start pumping. I can do that. Bag this guy. Okay, I can bag him. But having to deal with an adult who's dying of natural causes is pretty rough. Having to deal with a kid who's dying from unnatural causes is beyond the pale. Especially once you're a parent. It's just beyond what you can imagine. Labamba C says, I have a question. Would you recommend for people who want to be a law enforcement officer cross-train with being an EMT? In the Chicagoland area, we have a bunch of agencies that require that their people... We have a lot of agencies that require that people uh, become an EMTB and maintain that certification throughout their career. And as long as the agency that you're working for has pretty defined policies about when your police work starts and ends and where your EMT work starts and ends, there's no problem with it. 
And the problem you get into is when you're an EMT and the department has no policy about when you stop being an EMT and when you start being a cop and when you start be, stop being a cop start being an EMT. Because when you come on the scene, we have two very different jobs to do. Xfeel has a question. I like this one because it highlights a common misconception. Exafeel says, do you have any options on increasing the number of laws, regulations, and policies you probably need to deal with as a Leo? People have this mistaken impression that when a new law comes into effect, that it's going to have any effect on my life at all. What affects my life is case law. Case law changes the way police departments and police officers do things. It changes the rule of e- rules of evidence, changes the rules of how we can do things in our, our day-to-day work. Occasionally, we'll get a statute that changes small things about how we do stuff in our day-to-day work. It's not very common because most of the things that we're doing in our day-to-day work are exceptions to rights, basically. They're constitutional issues. Most of law enforcement is the gray area in the law between what's necessary to run a well-adjusted government and society and what people's constitutional rights are. And there's not a lot of statutes that get written that change that very much. And most statutes that get written that everybody freaks out about have no effect on my day-to-day life as a cop at all. They, they just don't affect anything. Uh, the legislature will make a law about people talking on their cell phones when they're driving. And when they make that law, it has absolutely no effect on how I do my job. Legislatures will make laws about people talking on their cell phones when they're driving, and most of the time that has no effect on, on how I do my job at all. And the reason is they make those laws that you hear about on the news to draw attention to a particular issue. In Illinois, they made a law that said you can't talk on your cell phone while you're driving unless you've got, you know, a Bluetooth device or some hands-free device. Well, distracted driving was always illegal in Illinois. I could always write a ticket for that. If you were blah, 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 talking on your phone and driving, I could always write you a ticket for that. So when they wrote that new law, it didn't change anything. A lot of laws are written like that. When you hear about, new, oh, this new law came out, it probably has no effect on the way I do my job at all. And if it does, it's going to be a very small effect. Most of the changes in police work are from case law. Because the legislature decided to take some flavor of the month and write a statute about it doesn't mean it's going to like drastically affect how I do my job. I hate to break that one of the legislature. But that's just not, just not the case. Occasionally something will come up, but it's not very often. Here's a good one. Eduardo says, I lied on my background paperwork, but I have the polish soon. Should I confess and say the truth? I think you should give up on that job. If there's something they're going to find out, you should just give up on that job. This is why you don't lie on the background paperwork. Because now you get yourself into a trick bag. You lie on the background check paperwork. You take the polygraph. Let's say you pass the polygraph. Five years from now, they find out that you lied on the background check paperwork. Now you're fired five years into your career. And now you don't ever have a chance of getting a job anywhere else. Because you lied. Bad idea. I would just walk away from that, take it as a lesson learned, and go apply somewhere else. That is the best advice I could possibly give you. I know you're not going to follow it, but I'm telling you, walk away, take it as a lesson learned, and just go find somewhere else to apply. 
Because if that gets found out, you're not just going to lose that job. This isn't a job at McDonald's. You're going to lose a career because they could find out five, ten years in that you lied and then you get fired. Everyone else is telling Eduardo pretty much the same thing, except they're being way meaner about it. Adam Sheckhart says, he's got multiple questions. He says, have you ever arrested a military member in uniform? Not that I can remember. We don't have a lot of military bases around here, so that's not something that comes up a lot. Who was your first arrest? I don't honestly remember. I can tell you about my first self-initiated arrest. My first self-initiated arrest, something that I wasn't called to, uh, that, that I created on my own, was... I arrested a 12-year-old with a gun. And I arrested a 12-year-old with a gun. I should probably make this a separate stream. But I'll tell you guys now. We might make a separate stream later. I arrested a 12-year-old with a gun because uh, some kids were trying to beat him up. And he asked me for a ride. And I said, sure, but i got to pat you down first before I put you in my car. And he goes, oh, okay. And he didn't know that I was a gun guy. And I would recognize what the Derringer in his pocket felt like. So I felt it. And I said, what's this? He goes, my dad's weapon. And I was like... Bam, up on the car, cuffed him up, covered it. That was my first self-initiated arrest. The first arrest that, like, I went out and I got on my own. No one called about the situation. It was very, very early on in my career, too. I don't think I was even out of field training at the time. Joe, uh, Joe Mckia says, is Chicago as bad as we hear nationally? Chicago in total is as bad as you hear nationally, but you have to realize that the Chicago metro area is enormous. And as much as there's bad parts of Chicago, most of the violence that you're hearing about, most of the crime that you're hearing about, it's consolidated to a very small area with a very small population that's involved with it. I'm sure if you're from a town that's mostly nice, you would be shocked to see the statistics of Chicago. But if you went to the north side of Chicago, you would see very, very nice areas. It would look very much like the place that you live at and is 15 or 20 miles away from the problems that Chicago has. When we get people to come in from out of town, they say, well, we're going to Chicago. Be careful because this is Chicago. And I go, no, this is Orland. <laughs> this is a suburb and you're not in Chicago and you're a long way from anywhere. You know, you're a good five, six miles away from anywhere where we're having really serious crime problems. It'll say, oh, this is Chicago. I got to be careful here. I'm like, no, this is O'Hare Airport. <laughs> you're not going to get shot and killed, hopefully, at O'Hare Airport. That's not what's going on. You're not going to get carjacked at O'Hare Airport. You know, it's big news downtown and on the north side. It's big news downtown and on the north side when, you know, people's cell phones are getting stolen at a coffee shop. It's not, it's not a regular thing with, you know, people aren't getting knocked off on every corner in Chicago. It's a big, big area. It's not like, you know, you go to Detroit and most of Detroit is a bad neighborhood. Or you go to Gary and most of Gary is a bad neighborhood. It's kind of like going to D.C., the best way I could describe it, right? Like you could go to DC and if you're on the national mall, it's not a bad neighborhood. You go, you know, the outskirts of DC and you get some bad neighborhoods. I think it's like that with most cities though. You know, is, is LA a bad town? No. Are there bad parts of LA? Yeah. Same type of thing with Chicago. James Pulaski, while we're talking about the Taser inverse OC video earlier says OC is much worse than Taser. That has been the concerted opinion of most people that I talk to who have involved been involved with both of them. 
I would certainly rather be tased three or four times than get hit with OC once. I'll be honest. I'd rather take a 15-second ride than get sprayed in the face with OC. I hate that stuff. Devil's piss. Exophil says, the newer models of tasers really get you compared to the older gens. The new ones have a different shape pulse uh, that locks you up a lot more. If you get the really, really old tasers, they conduct electricity, but they don't use the same pulse technology. It doesn't lock your muscles up as effectively. It's just kind of like getting electrocuted. The new electronics have found a way to make the taser more effective with less amperage. So it hurts a little more. <laughs> and it locks people up a lot more effectively. They tense all their muscles up, and uh, it makes it easier to take them into custody. The original air tasers didn't work like that. It, it didn't have any type of shape pulse technology. It wasn't really efficient, and the taser just kind of zapped you. James Pulaski asks, what is the scar from on the back of your head? Right here. See if you guys can see that. I've got lots of stories from that scar. I will tell you guys just this one time on this stream what it actually is. It's just a skin tag on the back of my head. The doctor says it's been there since I was born. It's just where the skin... Most people, when the skin forms on their, their body, when they're you know in utero, it forms and it ends at like an opening, an orifice, right? And mine decided it was going to close up to the back of my head and it made like a tag of skin on the back of my head. That's all it is. Now, depending on who I'm talking to, I'll tell them that I was shot in the back of the head and they just skimmed it. Or that a Cub Scout shot me with an arrow in the back of the head. That's normally my go-to. Or I'll tell people that I fell off a motorcycle. Or I'll tell them that somebody cut, you know, hit me with a pool cue in the back of the head in a fight. Or I'll tell them it was a bar fight and some guy hit me over the back of the head with an ashtray. I got all sorts of stories for why that's there. But it's really just a skin tag. It's not as entertaining as anybody would hope. I wish I had a cool story about it. Scott says, how high rank do you want to go to, as a cop? I want to be right here. <laughs> I don't ever want to promote. It's not even on the agenda for me right now. <laughs> Alex Tillman says, glad to see you're still up and running. Almost got scared when I heard about the cop that got killed in Chirac today. When I read the article and saw it with some high-ranking guy, I knew you were okay. Thank you. I love you too, Alex. <laughs> Jack Gallagher says, what is your favorite kind of coffee to drink on duty? I drink all sorts of stuff on duty. I really like Death Wish coffee, if I'm going to be on midnights. Death Wish coffee has like four times the amount of caffeine that normal coffee does, and it's delicious, which is great. Uh, I do the Keurig K-Cups from Folgers. Folgers does some like caramel drizzle and vanilla flavored K-Cups. I do those. I also do the uh, gas station 3 a.m. coffee with as much creamer as you can pack into it to make it taste like something other than brown death. Oh... I'll pretty much drink any type of coffee. As long as it's fresh, I'm pretty solid with it. Unless someone wants to start sending me coffee. If you're a coffee company and you want to start sending me coffee, but I'll put my sticker right there. Save me $1,000 a year on coffee bills. And I drink a lot of uh, hot chocolate, too. This is actually it's hot chocolate I'm drinking right now. i got to go to bed. i got court in the morning. Charles Sexton says, what do you think about the Smith & Wesson SD40 as a duty pistol? Uh, the triggers on those kind of suck. The last one I played with, the trigger really sucked. Although the Smith & Wesson M&Ps aren't a whole lot better, I'd, I'd probably want an M&P instead. Slightly better gun.
all, all around, slightly better built gun, slightly better trigger. I've heard that Smith & Wesson came out with some even better triggers recently. I haven't played with them, though. One of my new guys is supposed to get the um, the upgrade his pistol to the better trigger. He's got a M&P 9, and he was going to get the 2.0 or whatever and let me play with it, but he hasn't bought it yet. When he does, I'll play with it, and I'll let you know. Benevis James says, if we're going to ask gun questions, I knew that would open a can of worms, what do you think about the Sig Sauer P226 TACOS pistol with a 20-round mag? A uh, guy I work with used to have one. He's not a cop anymore, but he was carrying around the TACOS pistol. He really loved it. I shot it. It's got a nice uh, double-action trigger. It's got a nice single-action trigger. I personally wouldn't use it because I use striker fires at work. That's the best for me, but he was a DASA guy from way back in the day, all the way back to he was in the Marines and using Beretta 92, so it didn't bother him at all. And he really loved that pistol, and he loved the fact that it came with stock 20-round mags that actually worked. You can't can't fault him for that. Jack Luck says, Sturmgewehr or nothing? <laughs> you better have, a, better have a pretty big bank account if you're going to be carrying around a Sturmgewehr. George Incredible says, Can a cop buy his own duty weapon or do you have to use whatever they give you? Well, that depends on the agency. Uh, where I work, we have to provide our own duty weapon. There is no option for using the one the department gives you because they don't own them and they don't give them to you. Uh, places right near me issue everything, and when you need something new, they send you the uniform supply shop and they go, go on over there and get a new one. And I've seen everything in between. Places that buy some stuff don't buy other stuff. Chicago PD, they got to get everything. Vest, all the uniforms, guns, they basically only provide them with like a badge, their commission card, an ID card, and a radio. And the radio is at the station. They're going to take that thing home. Right? Like they're, they have to buy all their own stuff. If it's not an agency restricted item, they have to buy it. So it, it depends very widely on where you work. Some places you have to use their duty pistol, some places you have to buy your own off an approved list. Charles Sexton says, I'm an unarmed security officer. Would you recommend a body armor that is under the shirt? We aren't allowed to carry weapons. Your input on this would be very helpful to me. I always suggest that if you work in public safety, you at least have the option of wearing body armor, especially if you're security or a cop. If you are armed with a handgun and you're working security or you're working as a police officer, I think it should be required. If this was King Tommy land you would be required to wear body armor. That would be me. If you work on unarmed security and you can get a hold of body armor and you can wear it, wear it. It's worth its weight in gold. It is worth all of the aggravation of having to wear it, and it's well worth the cost. One gunshot wound that you don't get because you're wearing body armor will save you. Financially, it's, it's well worth it. And the peace of mind is beyond well worth it. <laughs> Homero Mendoza says, With you saying earlier how everyone dies and that you could die on your way to the gym, has me thinking, if something happens to you, will someone post and let us know so we aren't left in the dark? There are plenty of people who watch the YouTube videos who know me in real life. And I am sure they will let you know. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to care because <laughs> I won't be here. But I'm sure someone I'm sure someone would let you know. Don't worry. Loco Moco says, what about when police arrest someone for domestic violence fighting over a video game 
and then you have to pay $3,000 to bail out plus $2,000 lawyer's fees. Isn't that extreme? Well, where I'm at, you get what's called an I-bond, which means if you've never skipped out on a bond before, they just let you sign your name and you get out. So if you're getting a $3,000 bail in Cook County, Illinois, you did something very severely wrong earlier in life. And uh, $2,000 in lawyer's fees, that's not me doing that. That's the lawyer. You want to solve most of the problems in the world? You look at what lawyers are doing to the rest of the world. That's, that has nothing to do with law enforcement. I don't make you hire a $2,000 lawyer. I don't make lawyers charge $2,000 fees. In fact, the criminal justice system provides you with a lawyer if you can't afford one on your own. We do everything to be able to allow people to get a fair trial. Or at least as close to a fair trial as anybody can get anybody. Abraham Hernandez says, How is the new guy in the last phase of field training do overall? Is he on his own now or still with you for a couple days? i got about eight days with him still, I think. He's almost done. He's doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. James Pulaski says, Oh, and Tommy, Paul Ask E is how you pronounce it. LOL. There's a lot of Polish people live here. I know how Pulaski is said. I hate to break it to you. Unless you didn't mean it to say Pulaski, like the last name Pulaski, then you mean that your name is Paul and you ask things a lot? It's pronounced Pulaski. <laughs> we have a street here named Pulaski. Whatever. <laughs> you know what? Pronounce your name however you want, but I'm not going to relearn it because there's a street here named Pulaski, and that will totally screw my brain up. Brythreen Gibbons says, I'm on duty right now in my patrol car and saw your video. Time to eat and watch you on my break. I do remember the first time on a car wreck. I don't think anybody forgets their first time on a bad car wreck. Joseph Timothy Croning says, Can you do a video on gear placement on a duty belt? I have several duty belt videos. Go check them out. I have one on revolvers. I have one on my police duty belt. I have one on unarmed security duty belts. I have one on where the different places you can put your magazines. I got all sorts of stuff. Talk about it at length. Listen, you got to like strap me down and put a ball gag in my mouth to get me to stop talking about gear. <laughs> you can find all of it on the YouTube channel. Trust me, it's all up there. Google it, it'll come up. Speed Window 07 says, How do you keep your humanity and train your brain to not freak out when you see messed up stuff like dead people? I think you just, you kind of get used to it. You see it enough times and you, you get a little desensitized to it. And the one trick that I can tell you for not getting freaked out and not losing your composure is to stay on task. We all have a job to do. We show up on a scene. We know what that job is. And you start accomplishing it. You walk past and you see what's going on down there. And you take a moment. And then you walk, you compose yourself, and you walk away and you get onto the tasks you have at hand. There's no foolproof way for me to tell you how to do that, but that's the job that we have to do in order to accomplish our work. As police officers, it's the same thing the paramedics have to do. The paramedics see this mangled mess, and they have to go, all right, what's the worst thing on here? We need to start treating that. we got to get them in the ambulance and get them to the hospital. they got a job to do. It's not until later that it starts hitting you the things that you've seen. Things that you've seen that I don't even want to talk about on here. Dan gives you good advice. 
about dealing with you know, like traumatic injuries where you, you have deceased people there. Stop, think, and rationalize. This dude is dead. And he leaves it dot, dot, dot. I'll finish it for him. This dude is dead. I can't help him now. But I've got these other things I need to do. Very good advice from Dan. Thank you, Dan. Dan, I know, has seen some serious stuff in his career. Brad Window 07 says, Yeah, but a lot of cops seem like they are sociopaths and are indifferent to dead people and have no respect around them. Part of the coping mechanism for police officers and for everyone that's in a public safety industry, trust me, everyone that has to deal with people that have traumatic injuries, is having dark humor. You have to. You'll lose your mind. There's a difference between a person being a sociopath and a person having dark humor. Dark humor is almost a necessity if you're going to work in an industry where you're going to deal with deceased people. You go to a hospital, you talk to nurses or doctors, go to the morgue, talk to people who actually operate funeral homes, and you'll hear a lot of dark humor. You have to laugh so you don't cry. That's not someone being a sociopath. That's someone being human and having to deal with the human limitations that we have and deal with them the best we can so that we can continue to provide the service that society needs from us. Loco Moco says, a 2016 article by Time Magazine says police deaths have been falling since 2011. BLS.gov states police are not in the top 10 most dangerous jobs in America. I don't understand the media hype. Here's what you don't understand. Law enforcement, all police, when taken together, statistically, the job that they're doing all over the country is not statistically that dangerous. The problem is that all of the danger is localized <laughs> to small areas that where it's extraordinarily dangerous. And so the statistics belie how dangerous that job is. I'll give you a, a parallel example. Truck driving is not statistically that dangerous. People get hurt truck driving. They definitely do. I've seen guys get killed truck driving. I was a truck driver for a while. You can get injured. But statistically, if you look at what they're doing, and where they're doing it, it's not the most dangerous job. It's not super, super dangerous. Do it in Alaska. The danger is localized. It's in a specific area that is more dangerous than other areas. Law enforcement's the same way. Yeah, the dude out in the middle of nowhere pulling three traffic stops a night, writing speeding tickets, his job is probably not that dangerous, statistically speaking. It's probably about as dangerous as a highway worker because he's standing out on the side of the highway. But he's not doing it for long periods of time either, most nights. So it's not statistically that dangerous. But you can't equate that cop with the cop who's working in Inglewood in Chicago or Compton, you can't, like, you can't, there's no correlation there. The places where police officers are getting killed on the regular are dangerous, dangerous places for cops. Because they're extremely violent, dangerous areas where criminals run the neighborhood. 
That's way different than the statistical realities nationwide, but it's like that with any profession. Fishing's not dangerous. Do it commercially. Being a welder isn't dangerous. Do it 60 feet under the water on an oil derrick. It's like that with almost anything. Jack Gallagher says, what would you do if you responded to a wreck with someone you know and or love? Well, if it was a non-serious wreck, I would get all the information that I could, make sure everybody was okay, and then I would pass it on to, you know, whoever's call it was going to end up being, because I couldn't take it if it was, you know, a family member or a loved one. If it was a fatality, I would probably lose my mind. I'm not going to lie. I would probably, probably lose my shit right there on the side of the road. I'm not too proud to admit that. Barnabas James says, What do you think about switchblade knife laws? Do you think that switchblades should be legal or not? I don't think switchblades should be made. And not because I have something against switchblades. It's just in 2018, I think they're kind of silly. Other than as a toy for people who like gear, which we all know, I like gear. I don't see any practical purpose to a switchblade at all anymore. We have one hand, I think the one hand opening knife with a pocket clip has completely eliminated the need for the switchblade entirely. You can open them and close them with one hand. They're a lot stronger than switchblades, especially the out the front switchblades that everybody likes. And now we have assisted opening sw- on knives, which are a pocket clip knife where it has a little thumb stud that you push it a little bit and it pops the knife all the way open. And you close it like a normal pocket knife with one hand. I see no point to a switchblade anymore other than as a play toy. And if you like play toys, that's great. I don't care. Should they be illegal? No, I don't think they're any more dangerous than any other knife. And in fact, I think they might be a little less dangerous because most of them are built like crap today. Look at the steel. A lot of switchblades are made out of even really expensive ones. It's not all that great. The lockups aren't all that great. You use that to fight someone, you're fighting a losing battle. You're better off with a fixed blade knife. And for something you can carry in your pocket, be better off with just a, a one-handed opening knife. Spyderco, Endura, Delica, HK makes a whole bunch of knives, CRKT makes a bunch of knives that are great. Be better off with one of those. A quick opening one-handed knife would do you a lot more. And they're a lot more legal everywhere. Brandon Elliott says, hey man, I work at McDonald's. I must have said something about McDonald's workers. There's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. There's no shame in any job that pays the bills. The key is to continue to strive for a better job or a better position in life. There's especially nothing wrong with working at McDonald's if you're the owner. (laughs) You know, like, I know guys that are, they go to parties and they're like, oh, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm an executive. Well, where do you work? Oh, waste management. And they're all embarrassed about it because they think people are going to be like, oh, you're a garbage man. Nobody cares. You're an executive at a company. Tell them, I'm an executive for waste management. That's our garbage company out here. Nobody cares. It's a good job. Jobs come in two varieties. Those that don't pay the bills and those that do pay the bills. As long as you're paying your bills, you're fine. Eric Lopez Torres says, what do you think about foreign-born citizens or immigrants that become citizens in police departments? I don't have any problem with that. You either do the job or you don't. If you're legal to work in the United States and you get a job as a cop, that's great. Hop on in. Give me something to work with. (laughs) Just be good at it. That's all I ask. Let's see, we're going to take one more question here as soon as I find one that's applicable, and then uh, then we're going to call it a night. It's been uh, almost two and a half hours now. 
on the stream. But we still have 113 people watching live on YouTube. Thank you guys for sticking around. Smith & Wesson Model 19 says, Hi, Tommy. You skipped my question about your computer shows when you run plates. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm scrolling trying to find questions. We have government-run car insurance here, so running plates shows if the insurance is active plus registration info. That's cool. Uh, where we're at, it doesn't show the insurance info. If you go to some states, when you get pulled over, they ask you for license and registration. We don't do that here because your registration is part of your license plate. It's different everywhere you go. And that's the internal uh, Secretary of State or BMV uh, computer system that the police computers interact with for us to get that information. You also get leads and NCIC responses, things like that. All right, so that is it. We're two hours and 13 minutes into a live stream, which I'm sure the powers that be won't like because it's talking about all sorts of real stuff from real life with real people and real reactions to it. Thank you all for sticking around and hearing my story about Sadie and the impact that she had on my life. And I hope you took something from it that you can apply to your life. And I hope this was entertaining for you. If you have any questions or comments or things you would like to see live streams or podcasts done about, I am on Instagram. I put like my whole life on my story on Instagram. You can see what I'm up to on Instagram. Facebook, we got a Facebook page. I've been posting things up on both the Facebook and Instagram, really short training videos on simple stuff, little tiny skill set stuff. I put them up there. You can check it out there. I've got my website. You can PM me on Facebook, Instagram. The website has a little box in the bottom that says contact. Click that, fill it out. Ask me your question. It sends me an email. Freefieldtrainingpodcast.com is going to be going live pretty soon with these episodes up better edited, much better edited than I could ever do in an audio form only. I think you guys are going to like it. I'll let you know as soon as that goes live. There's a little contact button on there. You fill out a form. It sends me stuff. Give me ideas for videos and podcasts and training stuff that you want to see, gear that you want to see. Talk to me. Tell me what it is that you want to see on the channel. Uh, There's four videos up on Patreon right now. If you're a patron and you haven't watched them, I know I have like 70 patrons and the videos on Patreon only get like 15, 20 views when I post them up. Go on there and watch them. They're available to everybody that's on Patreon. Go watch the videos. You can see them early if you want. Uh, Until next week, you guys be safe and take care of each other. We've got lots of ideas for podcasts, but we always need more. And we love hearing what the audience would love to hear about. Head on over to freefieldtrainingpodcast.com and tell me what questions you have and we'll make another episode about it. Click on contact, fill out the quick web form, and let's make some more free field training. I'd like to thank all the Patreon supporters and especially the shift supervisor level Patreon supporters that we have listed here. Your contributions are what allows free field training to continue on and become better. Thank you.